Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. The podcast allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, I have Art Butler. He's an IT professional with over 22 years of diverse IT and software engineering experience. The last 15 years, his focus has been mainly as a consultant and architect in the DevOps space. He also is a technical product owner. On this episode, we talk about what it means to be a technical product owner. We dig into his background into a DevOps engineer, and we talk about what skills you need to be successful in the role, as well as we talk about leadership from a couple different perspectives that are very interesting. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please make sure to rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this episode today. Now, let's get it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I have Art Butler with me for this episode. How's it going, Art? It's going really good, Dana. So to start today's episode, I want you to give my audience a brief introduction to who you are and what your current role is. Yeah, so I'm Art Butler. I've been working in IT for 20 some odd years. My current role is a product manager for a technical compute platform that we use to deliver computing applications like websites that our customers use to access the services that we provide. So all of that runs on my platform. I'm responsible for that platform to deliver those applications to serve our customers. And Art, you know what I've been learning lately is that product manager means different things at different companies. So I do want to take a moment and highlight for you, since you're a technical product manager, what are some of your day-to-day activities? So from a day-to-day basis, I'm always, you know, keeping my ear to the ground and meeting with my consumers of my platform. So they'll have specific requirements. So I need to know what those requirements are and build a roadmap and let them know when and if I'm going to deliver those capabilities to meet their requirements. That's one of the first and foremost things that I'm doing. The other thing is just to make sure that the platform and the services that I deliver to meet the needs of my consumers is available. So it's basically two-pronged making sure what I have out there right now is working and they can utilize it and it's always up and running and then actually meeting the future needs of my consumers. So I'm always getting those requirements and making sure that I'm presenting a roadmap. And if I can't meet the requirements, then I have to go to like, see if I can get the money for it, see if I can get it prioritized with upper management and explain to them why this is adding value for our company to see if we can get that on the roadmap. So it sounds like you're dealing with two sides of the spectrum. You're dealing with the consumer side, but also on the flip side, you have to talk to C-suite and executives to actually get their buy-in to see the value of some of the features that you're trying to get onto your platform. So how do you balance that? Because it's a little bit of context switching, in my opinion. And that's a great point, Dina. It's actually very challenging to to balance. It is a requirement of the, of the job as a product manager, but it, it it does take time management to balance that because as far as meeting the, the current needs, sometimes you're going through some technical challenges to do that. And it takes away from being able to meet with your consumers. And so one of the things you do is you just kind of like stay transparent. So when I can't necessarily give the focus to the the future capabilities, I'm being very transparent about why I can't do that. 
And then also I enlist help. So, you know, I can go to upper management and just make sure that they understand in certain forums what's coming. And then I kind of like, you know, let them have that decision and just try to be give them all the data points that they need to be able to make a good decision and just kind of let them know, be transparent about where I'm at in the process. Okay. So one other question that comes to mind with your whole process is once you get a roadmap going, once you get agreement that, hey, this is what we want to add from a feature standpoint, you have to actually work with the team to build that out, right? That is correct. And generally, most most companies that I've been working with in the last, I would say like 10 to 12 years, we follow agile methodology and we're constantly building a backlog with those features that are coming in our roadmap. And to get that backlog to where we want it and groomed and ready to execute on, there's a lot of work, but we follow agile methodology where I have my architects, my lead engineers, they're having the conversations as necessary to at least get those features started, get them to a point where we can start on them. And once we get to that point, you can kind of understand when you can deliver on those. And then you can change your roadmap accordingly. It's really a prioritization discussion because you have limited resources. So you, you can put things in your roadmap generally tentatively. And then you, you come up with those tentative dates a lot of times based on the customer's expectations. But ultimately, once you get to the point where you're really having those deep conversations with your engineers and architects on what it's going to take to deliver those features, you can get closer to a real date. And you just stay transparent in that process the whole time because the business is going to have to make certain decisions on when you truly can deliver or if you can't. You know, it seems good in theory, but I'm going to throw a monkey wrench into what you've mentioned. And I'm sure this has happened to you many times. There's a lot of times where consumers or individuals come and say, well, this needs to be a priority. I need you to do this now. How do you handle that, especially if you already have a roadmap created? And as you mentioned, you have things in the backlog that you need to address. That's a great question because that happens way too often. So one of the things that I've had to learn over the years is how to be good at saying no. Sometimes you just have to say no. And then if they won't take no for an answer, that's when you have to kind of like run it up the chain to have a prioritization conversation. Because again, you only have so many resources. And if it really is that valuable, especially to the enterprise, then those who are making those decisions at the C-suite and at the senior VP level, they can have that prioritization discussion. And then if they do deem it as a priority, then I can make some changes in my roadmap to say, hey, some of these things that I was going to deliver are going to get deprioritized for this this new effort that came. But until then, most of the time, what I do is I essentially say no until we can at least have some of those conversations. And then if they don't take no for answer, I just kind of have to run it up in that fashion. So in this instance, it sounds like when you say no, no is a complete sentence. Am I right? No, it's a complete sentence. Wait, you know, let, let me just be a little bit clear. Sometimes it's no or no, not right now. Mm-hmm. Meaning like I may be able to do it, but it's nowhere near in the time frame that they need it from a business perspective. So to them is no, even if it's not right now, you know, so, so they might need it on a specific date to meet a certain business objective. And in those cases, if I can't deliver it, even though it's not right now, it's to them, it's a no, it's a hard, no complete sentence. Yeah, I've definitely seen that experience, especially on the consulting side. And for those who are interested in the product manager role, want to know from you, what skills do you think someone has to have in order to be successful as a product manager? I think really, you have to be able to converse with your consumers. Today is really technical product management. So 
I would honestly say you also have to kind of be somewhat of a SME in not not a super detailed low level SME, but at least have a strong understanding technically of the products that you're delivering, what those products do for your consumers, why your consumers are using those products. And then the other part is just really just having strong communication skills empathy to understand, kind of put yourself in the shoes of your consumers or your customers. I think that's a big one. So communication, always being transparent. And then the other one is being able to interpret what the business needs are into technical needs. Give that conversation both ways because your engineers and your architects, they need to not only understand just technical details, but they have to understand the why. And you kind of need to translate that to them so that they can be as innovative as possible in their delivery. What I find so interesting that you keep mentioning is it's a technical product manager role. So I want to know from you, what is the difference between the technical product manager versus just product management? From a pure product management role Mm -hmm. versus a technical product manager, I think there's a couple of things. I think the major difference is essentially on the technical side, being able to translate those requirements to your engineers and architects to deliver those features in the best way. I think having that broad-based, medium-level technical expertise, because technology touches so many different pieces today, it's no longer a very isolated domain. You have to be kind of have a strong understanding across the technology domain, especially in computing, meaning it could be, you know, application development, it could be platforms that compute platforms, it could be web-based services, APIs, et cetera. Just having a good understanding that in networking, having a good understanding of all of those, maybe not necessarily a SME, but maybe a SME in a few of those areas to be able to kind of really you know, deliver those features. Now on a pure product management side, one of the things that you have to get into is kind of like, you know, market analysis and things like that. You don't really find that as much on the, on the technical product management side. You do find it somewhat if you're directly customer facing. But that's one of the things that I think differentiates between a pure product management role that's not as technical. It's really you're getting into market segmentations, market analysis, and a lot of, you know, interviewing your customers. Well, you actually might do that on the technical side too, you know, just getting customer feedback and data. That's a very important part of both, whether it's technical or not technical. So I think the market segmentation and market analysis is kind of where they diverge a little bit. They still overlap, but they diverge somewhat. Oh yeah, definitely. They overlap. That's for sure. But I do feel like if you're doing technical product management, in a way you're using two different parts of your brain because usually people who are on the technical side like to get into the nitty gritty details. Y'all can't help it. I've seen it time and time again. Technical people love to get into the details. Whereas Mm -hmm. for product management, you're using a different side of your brain because it's more of the soft skills of like organization, talking to your consumer, your client. And so for you, has it been hard to keep that balance of product management versus the technical side? Absolutely. <laughs> you, you, absolutely. You, I think one of the things about being technical, you're just always curious. So, I, I mean, I have my product architects, I have my, my engineer and, you know, I'm in there, you know, I try to be as close to the ground as I possibly can to just kind of get a, get a beat of how the teams are delivering and where they may be having challenges and where we might need to, you know, pivot. Because part of my job is to build a, a really good team and keep a strong team. So when you see some of the things that they're playing with, you kind of want to dabble too. One of the things that has helped me with that is that a lot of times my access to some of these things have been taken away from me. And so for a long time, I was a technical product manager in the continuous delivery space, um, especially around 
building applications and delivering those applications onto compute platforms. So that's kind of like my background for a lot of years. This whole container thing that I'm doing, I did that as a challenge because I am not a SME in that area. And that has helped actually. So the curiosity is there. So I want to play around, but it's too dangerous for me to play around on our system, to be honest with you. So it's it's allowed me to kind of like step away from the nitty gritty details and having my hands on the keyboard because I've went into a space where I did not, you know, grow up in that domain. And so that's really helped me. And so I think time is the other part. I only have so much time <laughs> anyway. So even as curious as I want to be, I have to spend a, a significant amount of time, you know, dealing with my customers, communicating with my customers. So that's the other piece of it. So I've kind of learned over time to kind of hone in that curiosity and, you know, taking this new role on a container platform that I, you know, I'm not a SME in has kind of helped with that. You know what? There's two things I want to go back and touch on. First is that you mentioned being close to the ground when you're working with the team. Now, I've seen the positive and negative sides of that. So I want to ask from your perspective, does that ever affect your relationships? I have. When I first started out on this track from product owner to product manager, being close to the ground, sometimes I probably gave too much guidance. Not so much micromanage, but I didn't let my team come up with their own ways on how to do something. So it took took some years and I learned how to back away from that. So now when I'm saying close to the ground, it's really, I'm just, it's just more of an ear to the ground. So a lot of times I'll attend meetings without even giving much feedback. If I see something that they need help in, I let them try and figure it out themselves first. I kind of let the product architects and product engineers, I rely on them to, to kind of figure out their own way because I don't want to get in the way to innovation. Two, my thought process is not necessarily the best. And then on top of that, I think where I do interject in is just on the why. I really try to push the why when I have my ear to the ground and let them understand why we're doing something. And I think that drives innovation a little bit better. And then it also gives them a sense of purpose, you know, because we work on a lot of technology bits and bytes here and there, and it can become a little mundane, but you really have to have an understanding of why you're doing something and what the impact is going to be to our consumers. I think that it helps them feel like a sense of purpose for the work that they're doing. It, it, it is a balancing act, but I really try to just understand what's going on, where they may need help, making sure they understand why we're doing something and not really interjecting too much. I kind of stay out of the way. That definitely answers my question. And I'd have to highlight where you mentioned having someone feel like they have a purpose. I think that's what's missing from a lot of people's careers and their jobs because there's so much either micromanagement or stepping on each other's toes, they don't feel like they really have a purpose in their role. So I really appreciate that you mentioned that that's the attitude that you lead with being that you're a product manager on the team. Hey, thanks, Dina. Actually, before we switch to the next topic, last question I have around being a technical product manager is how can you get that role? Is this a role you see people who are coming out of college getting immediately is this a role that you see you need some experience? If someone's listening to the podcast and wants to be a technical product manager, what do they need to do? It's, it's a couple of ways. So I kind of got it organically, just starting to step away from the keyboard. Essentially, if, you're, if you've been a team lead in technology, or like a lead engineer, and then you kind of want to really start making more about decisions on the features that you're going to deliver in conjunction with being in a lot of conversations with 
the business. And you'll see lead engineers and architects get pulled in by product owners and product managers into those conversations. And you'll start to realize that you, you have the ability to be in front of the customer or in front of the consumer and be able to translate some of the requirements or requests that they have into delivering technology. And I think some that comes natural for some people, others it doesn't. But what I've seen is that some people will actually go get a product owner certification or at least become a product owner. And that's really where you're really starting to actually move closer to product management. Product owner is really running the scrum team and is responsible for making sure that technology is fully available and delivering on that technology. But they don't necessarily, they're not as much in front of the the consumer as far as building a roadmap, making sure you have the budget for doing certain things and making sure things are prioritized at an enterprise level. Their prioritization is really with inside the, the backlog of the team. And so the next step to graduating from a product owner is really going to the product management level. And that's essentially doing a lot of what a product owner does, but you're just really more customer focused. And you you have those budget conversations, you have those upper level prioritization conversations. And you can also get like a a certification in product management. I, I got my Scrum Master certification. I became a product owner and was always an engineer consulting. So out in front of customers also. So I kind of like built it organically and fell into the product management role. But those are some of the ways that you can do it. And you can also get a product management certification. All right. You mentioned quite a few certifications, which I appreciate. Can you also mention which organizations to get those certifications from? Yeah, you can do it through Scrum.org and Scrum Alliance. Both of those provide product management, product owner, and Scrum Master certifications, pretty much any certification within the Agile, like Scaled Agile Framework. Awesome. And also, I just want to throw out two that I've done that a lot of people don't talk about and art maybe you even want to look into. They're more like leadership certifications. So Cal-E, and that's more related to the employees, and Cal-O, which is organizations, two leadership certifications, but it helps you think outside the box when it comes to leadership. It gives you just a whole different perspective from a holistic view that a lot of people don't even know about these certifications. So I want to throw that out there too. Hey, thanks, Dana. That's why I like talking to you. You always, you always put me on to something. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> right. yep. Now, Art, I know you don't think the conversation ends here because you've had a whole other half of life in the tech industry. Previously, you also were a DevOps architect. That is correct. And so DevOps is one of the hottest buzzwords in tech right now. And I understand it's much more than a buzzword, but I want to get people the actual real experience of being a DevOps architect. So why don't you start off by describing that role to my listeners? What does a DevOps architect actually do? So DevOps architect, it's, it's interesting. First of all, the word DevOps is fully loaded still to this day. Depending on who you ask, you'll get probably a different answer from everyone. But what it means to me is, you know, I started off working for a small company. Well, actually, I started off working for a very large company and moved to a small company where I was a consultant in the space of building applications and deploying those applications, automating the building of them and automating the deployment of those applications on the compute systems. And we were doing that before the word DevOps really kind of came out. It was basically the automation on building, testing and delivering your applications. And so working for a small company, one of the things that you end up doing is you wear a lot of different hats. So if I just want to test something and I need a, a particular database, I need a particular web server, I need you know a, a front-end server and I need a back-end server, I would build all that myself. 
So all of that's just operations for me to actually build an application to deliver it. So what you've seen over the years is that there's silos set up for each one of those. So your database, you have a database team. You have your um, your application development team, maybe front-end application. Then you have your, your middleware teams and, and, and you have all these silos. And so when you get into large enterprises, what happens is you have to put in a request to have anything done with each one of those silos just to deliver something end-to-end. And DevOps is essentially stringing all those together, taking out the middleman and being being able to do, deliver from beginning to end in an automated fashion. And so th- I kind of got into it naturally working for that small company and just, you know, automating things so that we didn't have to have those requests between silos. And that's basically how I got into DevOps and became a DevOps architect. And today that's gotten even more, I should say, become more complicated, but at the same time, more exciting because the cloud environments have come in in the last 10 years. And a lot of companies are moving to the cloud and your endpoints of compute is in the cloud. And that's given us you know, some other features that we can utilize to make it easier to do DevOps. And you mentioned that DevOps is a loaded term. Why do you say that? It's interesting. So if, if you go to like continuous delivery forums and any of these different DevOps conferences. It depends on who you talk to will determine how that's answered. I actually think it is pretty simple. It's it's you put the development and the operations into the same group of people. It's very hard to do that in an enterprise because you got compliance and stuff like that. So I think when it comes to the practicality of it and trying to implement DevOps is what changes the what changes the term based on where you're trying to, you know, implement DevOps at. So if you're in a small company where that's not like a banking industry or a medical or in the medical field where you don't have HIPAA and, you know, FDIC type stuff, regulations to deal with, DevOps might be exactly the way I explained it in the pure sense. But when you try to actually apply it in major corporations that do have these constraints, they may actually approach it slightly different. And you know what, you've kind of already mentioned the process for DevOps, but let's mm-hmm. break it down a little bit further and go step by step. Okay. So let's take an application development team. They're building, let's say, a JavaScript-based website. It has like a node-based backend server component, and it also reaches out to other peripherals, like a let's just say a database. So essentially, if I'm a development team, I don't want to have to go to some database team to get my database. Um, I don't want to go to a uh, middleware or a server-based team to handle my node server. And I and I don't want to have to be separate from my UX developers on the front end using JavaScript. I can essentially put them all in one room, potentially all in one room, or define a single process where I can actually spin up my database. I don't have to, I can just request it automatically. I can build my application to utilize that database automatically. And I can also spin up a component so that I can run my my server side, my node server side component. And then I can also spin up another, let's say just machine. It can be virtual container based to actually build and develop my front end. So I'm doing that all within a single team or even a single person. And we put together a process. Generally, in these days, we call them pipelines to actually build those and then to actually run my applications on them. So once I'm running my application, you're always you're still going through the software development lifecycle that's been around for years. Right. So you're developing and then you go through some middle stages of testing and then you eventually deploy that to production. So the DevOps piece is actually you know, provisioning my components, 
building on those components and testing in an automated fashion. So I don't want to have to test anything manually. I'm building my tests as part of building my software. And so I'm testing against my database. I'm testing my application against other, you know, maybe other applications I need to talk to and testing the, the, the server side and front end components. And so I take that through my life cycle. And then when I'm ready, I can automatically deploy to production. And if that's a rigid process, you can do that, you know, maybe multiple times a day. There are companies that actually deploy to production the same software multiple times a day. So that's kind of what that process is from beginning to end. You know, depending on what type of organization you're in, you can do it seamlessly. There might be, a, but the goal is to do it from beginning to end completely automated. Now, what are some of the tools and platforms that you're seeing being used to have a successful DevOps flow? Yeah, so there's some traditional tools. I would say like things like Jenkins, GitHub for version control, Jenkins for orchestration, Travis CI would be another one that's broadly used for orchestration. There's a new one coming out. GitHub is having their own orchestration that's coming out, and that's uh, GitHub Actions. It's out already. But when, and when I mentioned orchestration, that's the piece that runs the pipelines and allows you to, you know, link together all those different silos that I was talking about. Whether you're spinning up a, um, you know, a database or other components for your applications, um, and then I think the other thing is virtualization. Actually, really containerization. So we used to do virtualization where you can just spin up a, a virtual machine. But now those are heavyweight. So if I want to spin something up extremely fast, everything's moved to containers. And a lot of times that's done in the cloud. And the number one container orchestrator today that almost everyone is using is called Kubernetes. And so when you link all those components together, like Jenkins, GitHub, there's also another component that we use to house the actual deployment artifacts that you'll deploy, which is essentially your application. It can be in the form of images or in like a jar war file. Those would be things like Nexus, Artifactory would contain things like that. And then there's a bunch of testing tools in between. Some of the mobile developers that have certain types of testing tools that can emulate a, let's say, mobile device. I uh, can't think of some of the names of them right offhand. But then you have testing tools like Cucumber and Gherkin frameworks to automate some of your testing. And there's a myriad of other ones too. And so we've talked through what the current process would be like from a DevOps perspective. But to give some context and some color to where we've come from, can we talk about what the process used to be in the past and how it was manual? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Oh, it seems like ages ago in some ways. <laughs> you know, I haven't, I haven't thought about it in so long because it's, it's, we're so far removed from it in a lot of ways. But what happened in the past, let's say I'm building an application, I'll build it on my desktop. Uh, and es essentially what I would do is I would take that executable or whatever that artifact that I built, and I might put it on a shared drive for some QA team to go install it on some server and run it. <laughs> that might take them two or three days. We're going way back, maybe like a day, but way back, you're looking like two or three days. And then a lot of the tests weren't automated. So you had a thing called user acceptance testing, where you would literally, if you're running, let's say a website, you would have a user go in and click into certain fields and you would actually test to make sure the response is the way you want it to be. After that, if you have some problems, it went back to you as a developer on your on your computer and you build it again, throw it over the wall to the QA system until you got it right. And then at that point, someone deployed it onto some production server, a whole nother team. And you know that might be a whole 
ceremony in itself where you had like a production support team that would do that late at night, you know, when a lot of consumers aren't using the product and it would a lot of times require downtime. And I think that was one of the things I did not mention previously is that a lot of this automation we do, if you do it in a certain way, it doesn't require downtime in most cases. But in the, in the old days, it would require stopping your application and um, flipping to a new version of it. Yeah. Thinking about those days, is, it seems so far away. Yeah. It just sounds like we've definitely taken a step in the right direction. I'll put it that way. <laughs> right. And it eliminates a lot of the red tape that people used to have to experience of like getting your application to be usable by other people. It has. You're absolutely right, Dina. And from the perspective of being a DevOps architect, I want you to tell my listeners what skills do they need to be successful? Yeah. So DevOps architect, one of the things is having a background, somewhat of a background in application development. And one of the things I'm just noticing nowadays is that people are, their skills are, are very wide at least to a medium to a low level. So I would say have a significant experience in application development so that you kind of understand what the consumer is looking for, at least application developers, because that's who DevOps is really serving, is serving the application development community. And the underlying pieces that they need, having you know some background in like Linux and understanding what it takes to run on a Linux system, and then the virtualization piece, whether it's what we call infrastructure as a service is kind of like what we're moving away from now, that's kind of like heavy virtualization. And then I think the next piece is today, you have to have experience in containerization and maybe, you know, cloud-based experience like AWS or Azure, um, because that's a lot of your endpoints are going to go there. And then from a skills perspective for linking all of this together, strong background in scripting. I didn't mention Gradle as one of the, the tools, but understanding how to script in different languages that Gradle uses, which is, I believe is like Ruby-based and just having strong shell scripting understanding because you link a lot of things together from different systems and most of them are Linux systems. So understanding shell scripting, other things like Ansible. I didn't mention earlier Chef. So Chef, Ansible, those are automation tools and Chef is more configuration management. Having strong skills in, in GitHub, just understanding commit structures, pull requests, so you can do code reviews and some of those best practices there. I think that would get you to a good start. And then some of the testing frameworks. A lot of times the, the you don't necessarily, as a DevOps architect, have to write the test cases. That's generally in the realm of the application developers, but at least having an understanding of how to best run those test cases because there's different types of testing, functional, non-functional, and they require certain levels of resources. So as an architect, you want to be able to make the decisions, where's the best place to run those tests to make sure those tests are accurate and as close as they are as production-like. So yeah, I think that's that's a really good start. This leads me to my next question because I'm not a technical person and some of the interviews y'all have to go through for your roles are insane. So I want to ask from an interview perspective, if someone's going for a DevOps role, what are important topics that they need to brush up on or what are some potential questions that might be asked? First thing, I would just kind of want to get a, under, a strong understanding of you know their background uh, and some of the tooling that I just mentioned, like what their skills are, whether it's from using the utilization of GitHub and the utilization of some of the orchestration tools. I would ask them questions on, you know, what's the best way to potentially automate the delivery of some testing? What can be done in parallel? What needs to be done in, in sequence when you automate it? Because um, And how would you necessarily do that within a pipeline? 
what pipeline frameworks are you familiar with or have experience with? Um, so for instance, Jenkins has its own, what we call pipeline DSL. So it's essentially its own language for pipelines. If you're using GitHub Actions, it has its own language. So I might ask some questions specific to that, especially if that's the tooling that I'm using currently. I think the other thing is one of the things that you definitely want to be well-versed in is deployment techniques. So I was talking earlier about today with DevOps, you can deploy things without having downtime, or you can deploy things in the production to experiment. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but if you're using some of these complex deployment techniques like Canary releases, that's something that you can do. I would want to know if they had experience with Canary releases and actually understood what those are. Same thing with blue-green releases so that I can easily back out if, if I deploy something that's not working out, I can easily flip to the, the previous version. So understanding some of those advanced deployment techniques, I think is very crucial. Excellent. Excellent. I think that's going to be helpful for people who are looking for a DevOps role. And our, I'm trying to put the dots together and you said it's a natural progression, but I need some help. So you went from like DevOps architect to technical product manager. How did you go from like this extremely, what I consider an extremely technical role to a more customer facing, but still technical role? Like how does that progression happen? I think I was kind of lucky, honestly, because even when I was a DevOps architect, I was working for a smaller company where I had to wear a lot of hats. So a lot of times we'll get a contract to deliver a certain service the code distributively and then build on the mainframe and connect to distributed systems and deploy that in a testing and production. So a lot of times I'm the only person showing up for that. So I'm working on a statement of work. I'm working with the customer early on. And then at the same time, I'm kind of managing the customer, managing to that statement of work while I'm on site and I'm implementing. In some cases, I don't necessarily have to implement. Other times I'm just kind of like being more of a product man project manager. But a lot of times, even when I'm implementing, I had to always interface with the customer. So I was always getting that when I was working for a small company and going from customer to customer to customer, I was always out in front. So I think I kind of got that natural experience of working with customers and always keeping the customer in mind. Then when I started working in larger enterprises and focusing more purely on DevOps, I was always the, the lead. And so we weren't necessarily following you know, an agile methodology at first, but I'm still out front in front of the consumer. I'm still looking, looking at the requirements. I'm translating them back into a feature that we deliver. And I'm the lead engineer on that uh, so I'm still customer consumer focused. Uh, so I think once we started going into agile, that's where it kind of helped. So when I started doing primarily all agile methodologies, no matter where I was working, I went more from a lead position into a product owner position. And so I'm a SME in the space of DevOps. I'm delivering, you know, DevOps for my company. And that product owner just kind of just automatically transitioned further away from the keyboard into product management. But I kind of did have to kind of take that, take the, take a step away from the technology to, you know, on purpose to get more into that product management role as that last step. Yeah, I definitely can see that. And you know what, Art, we've been talking for a while. We've talked through some of your different roles. But one thing that I never asked you before, and how did you even get into tech, especially these technical roles? Yeah, good question. So I think I was always technical growing up. I blame that on my parents. My parents were not technical at all, but they just kind of knew that the world would be technical. So mm. they just stress math, science growing up. That was it. Math, science, math, science. I remember they bought me my first computer. 
and I would buy Computer World magazine and they would have, you know, programs written in basic. And it's always a typo in them somewhere. So without even having a book, I kind of learned how to program on my own by just kind of typing in those programs and kind of understanding what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so I always took a fancy, I guess, to computing, especially computer programming. But in college, I decided to actually, you know, with the grounding of science and mathematics in college, I decided to go into chemical engineering. I almost graduated in chemical engineering, actually, but I dropped out of school, kind of was a little wayward for like a year. And then I came back and there's a class that we call unit operations in chemical engineering. It's eight hours a day, five days a week. And it's only offered in the summer. And I had a prerequisite to that class that I had missed. So when I came back, there was like, you're going to have to sit in school for a year just to finalize four classes. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I went and got, I went to the computer engineering department. I was like, how long would it take for me to get a degree in computer engineering. And this is really coming from my chemical engineering classes where anytime we had a lab or something, I was the one always writing computer programs. And I just learned that on my own. Mm -hmm. So I ended up graduating with a degree in computer engineering. But right before that, before I'm going to graduate, I'm like, hey, I've never had an internship and this is going to be kind of hard to get a job. And so a friend of mine had just got a job at a particular company and she made a call for me and was like, hey, they're going to be here recruiting. You might want to take an internship with them. And that internship has basically been the cement of my career from there. I met people on that internship and they became some of my best friends to this day. They ended, they own that small company that I end up working for later. But when I left that internship, I went to go work for a major corporation. <laughs> Some people call them Big Blue. Worked there for, for several years. And then I left there and went and worked for that small company. And that small company happened to also have dealings with the company that I work with today. And so I would consult there from time to time. And I kind of cemented my reputation and they had great opportunities and I decided to take one there. And so it's just, I guess, you know what, you just never know how your paths are going to are going to go. But I, I can honestly say every step of the way, I met someone that was very influential into how I ended up in technology and where I ended up working. You know what? That's a great lesson in not burning bridges. And yeah, also how relationships are a major key in tech because you can meet someone now and then in five or 10 years be working at their company. So relationships are so key in the tech industry because I think it's a lot smaller than people think. You are right on. Like when you say don't burn any bridges, there was people that I came across in my, you know, in my career that I thought I would never see again. And you're right. It's a very small world. I, I could be in a company just walking down the hallway and someone say, hey, Art, not turn around as someone <laughs> that I was consulting for, you know, 10 years ago. Right. And that's happened to me multiple times. And you know what? In your you've been in IT for over 20 years and counting. And that's a long time. So I have to ask, how do you stay motivated to work in tech? Because, you know, some days it's draining. Some days it's a lot, but you're still here. Yeah. I ask that question to myself sometimes too. It can be draining. I think one part that keeps me motivated is that tech is always changing. And I think one of the things you have to do is be open to change. Technology has always been changing. I mean, that's what it does, but it's changing at a pace that's way faster than it's ever changed. And that part actually makes it exciting to me because I'm, it's not as mundane. And, I, and that curiosity in me is always 
Even though I'm not getting low level, but I'm reading up on what this new technology can do, why we would want to use it, uh, why you may not want to use it, you know, all those different considerations. I think that's what keeps it fresh, but it also keeps it challenging. That's the part that wants me to, I want to tear my hair out sometimes because we'll spend a lot of time and money to move to a certain platform just to three years, four years later, move to another platform. But yeah, so I think it's really that it's really the change, the pace of change and just being open to change. That's what keeps it exciting for me more than anything. Speaking of change, I have to know what are some of the new tech topics or new technology that's coming out that you think is going to be the face of the future? Yeah. So that the container platforms I was talking about is, I guess, containerization is not necessarily new, but the adoption of it is kind of new. And it's only really been becoming widely adopted in the last few years. I think containerization is is basically changing the way we build programs, run programs, and how fast we can deploy them. And, and that would place directly into DevOps. So that's one of them. Cloud computing, I mean, we've been talking about AWS for a long time now, but I mean, there's AWS, there's Google out there, Azure and some other players, but the products that they're delivering in that realm also from a containerization standpoint or even serverless computing where you can run programs without an actual server you just get to compute that you need there's no you know hey i have an ip address here is running specifically here you don't care about that i just need to run this and so i think serverless computing is what is is it's already out there but it's not widely adopted yet but i think there are some you know trailblazers that are doing a really good job at it so i think serverless computing is what you're really going to see next and that really changes the paradigm of things because you just don't care where things are running and what they're running on you just care that you expect it feedback back and and that's it and who are some of those trailblazers that you've been checking out so my listeners can look that up as well? Some of the top companies that I would say like Netflix, LinkedIn, those are some of the top companies when it comes to being able to deliver their applications and make changes to their applications pretty much on the fly. So Netflix is amazing to me, honestly. What you see on Netflix may be completely different than what I see. They can actually put in different features and just test them among a small subset of people and just get feedback to determine whether they want to roll it out to others. So I think those are two that come top of mind. I always appreciate your viewpoint on new tech topics because I don't know if you remember, but when we worked together, you were the one that put me on the blockchain and look at how far it's come in the future. Now we got NFTs and it's using the blockchain. So I oh my goodness, asking you that question. <laughs> oh my goodness, you brought me back a little bit, didn't you? And you know what? You just asked me about some of the I, I don't know how I left blockchain out. I'm still trying to figure out where blockchain is gonna go, but yeah, the NFTs was I, I was like, what is NFTs? These non-fungible fungible tokens and stuff. Like it's I can't keep that's another space that's I can't keep up in. So I'm always trying to read up and learn about it. Um, but yeah, you know, where, where the digital currencies and blockchain is going, just general ledger technology in general, where it's going. That's another one. I don't know how I failed to bring it up. Well, there's so many topics and so little time to bring up everything. So <laughs> I definitely understand. All right. Two final questions for you. Mm -hmm. First is a question about your future. So your career progression, you've done DevOps architect, you're now doing technical product manager. Where do you see yourself going next after like technical product manager? Yeah, you know, I was asking myself that this morning. Actually, <laughs> I'm still working on that, I think a little bit. I think, I, I, you know, technical product manager, I want to kind of fill it out a little bit more. 
I am considering potentially going to a more pure product management role where I do get more into the business side of things and making decisions on things like market segmentation. That's, you know, the more I study product management, that is becoming, you know, more, I'm more interested in it. And that's the more the non-technical side of things. So that's that's one thing. And then I think the other one is just, you know, upper management within an enterprise, maybe, you know, like director VP or something like that. I know those are two different paths, but I'm trying to decide which way I would want to go. So either one would be a natural progression for me. If I went the more pure product management role, it would probably mean transitioning to into the more customer facing instead of consumer facing. And when I say consumer versus customer, like my platform is the consumers of it are application developers, mainly in data scientists within my company. But the the pure product management role would be interfacing directly with customers that use like our mobile apps or you know our websites and things like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's always good to have career options. So I'm not mad at you for having two different directions <laughs> that you might want to take. All right. And All final right. question for today. So for people, people listening to this podcast are either already in the industry or looking to get into tech and they aspire to be in a position such as yourself. So what do you recommend for my listeners in regards to getting into the industry and being successful? Yeah. So I would say getting into the industry, I think I brought up being curious quite a bit in this conversation, but I think people that are good with technology, they really like anything else. They really enjoy it. And so I think find out there's a lot of technology out there. So find out what technology you enjoy. So for me, it's in in the compute space, you know, DevOps, others, it could be like you mentioned blockchain earlier, Uh, just find out where it is that you you want to play. And there's so many opportunities to do that. And then to get in at first, you can either, you know, college degree, but it's not necessarily a college degree. I mean, some of the best people that I've met and hired have come right out of high school and they are were more advanced than some people that had college degrees. I think just get a college degrees or the certification to actually get into a company doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a college degree. I think that's the first part. And then once you actually get that entry level position or you get into to, to a space that you want to be in, be curious about everything you come across. So even if it's not necessarily in your domain, so for instance, you may be an application developer, but you're interfacing issues that are interfacing with the network. You have issues that come up that interface with your caching systems or your databases. And when you're working with the other SMEs of those different domains, learn as much as you possibly can learn, because I'm seeing a paradigm shift in the talent today. The talent today is really becoming very, um, they have a lot of breadth in skills and they have a lot of depth in a, at least two or three or maybe four major areas, but they understand at a medium level, almost every part of the computing paradigm across the board. And that allows you to take data points and make critical decisions when you're architecting or making engineering decisions at a different level than someone else that's just really kind of looking at technology and understanding technology at a deep level in their own domain. Excellent. I think that is really great advice. And Art, you have shed a lot of technical light, if not for everyone else and for me during this conversation today. Any parting words for I'm just excited. I, anyone listening, if you're interested in technology, I just say just go for it. It's one of those. It's one of those things where you're learning all the time, and if you like to learn all the time, it's the it's the place to be. And and like I said, there's so many different areas you can you can be in technology in because pretty much everything we do is through some digital format. So just find your place and 
And if you do, if you do something you don't like, you can go do something else that you you can find and find your place somewhere else in technology also. So where, wherever you start doesn't necessarily mean that's where you have to end up. You have a lot of choices. Yes, I like that. You are not a tree. You can always move, <laughs> so always remember that. Art, thank you for your time today. Truly appreciate it. You're welcome, Dina. Anytime. Appreciate it. It's great talking with you. Thank you for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.